everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Most of the time. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. And if you've been here before, I hope you guys already know how much I love and appreciate every single one of you. So this is part two. This is only my second story that I've ever had to break up into two parts. And as I said on the last part, I think that a lot of people are going to really enjoy this episode just because of the amount of times I've had it requested. This is by far my most requested episode. So I'm hoping that a lot of people are going to be here for both parts and that they're going to enjoy. By the way, little housekeeping item, like 96% of people who watch my episodes don't subscribe. Listen, people, we got to talk, okay? It's literally a click. And it helps me so much. Like, if you're not subscribed, please, please, please subscribe. Go follow me on Spotify. Follow me on Instagram. Like, I need help, okay? I'm not getting anywhere here. I need help. Please, 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 please subscribe, share, tell your friends about my show. Like, please, guys, I'm really, really begging you for help getting my channel out there because it's just not going anywhere. It's not growing and I need help. So take a look below. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe, please. As I said, like 90 something percent of the people that watch my episodes are not subscribed. And it's, it's just one little click. It's one little click, please. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into the second part of this disgusting person. I hate this guy. I hate this episode. I'm doing it for you guys, but I'm not happy about it. I hate him. I hate everything about this, so. So sorry for the change of clothes. I'm legit dying. Like, it's too early in the year for me to put my AC back in the room, but I'm sweating. Like, I don't sweat, and I'm sweating. So I had to make a change of clothes because I had a sweater on, and I don't have an AC, and I can't have my fan on when I'm filming because it's loud. It's like a whole thing, okay? So I apologize, but I had to change into this tank top. Won't happen again. I know some people get offended at this, so I will have the AC in my window by next week. But for now, you're just going to have to deal with this because I'm hot. being in prison, he remained a really powerful figure in the Chicago outfit. Again, not a made man, but he was powerful and very well connected and continued to be involved in a lot of criminal activities, both in and outside of prison. An FBI agent that had the misfortune of having to deal with DiStefano pretty often actually wrote a book. The book was titled The Enforcer, Spilotro, The Chicago Mob's Man Over Las Vegas. And in this book, he talks about how he would go to Mad Sam's house 
And he'd, like, go there for the regular stuff. He wants to, like, question him regarding stuff going on in the mafia. That's just what cops and mafia do. And when he would go to the house, Stefano would walk down the stairs in his pajamas and just, like, take off his pajama bottoms and his underwear and just completely expose himself to the detectives in his house. He regularly exposed himself to any kind of detective or cop that came into the house in a way to try to, like, humiliate them or intimidate them. Like, oh, look how crazy I am. You know, just dumb. The FBI agent, William F. Romer, wrote that Stefano was a violent and unpredictable individual who was capable of extreme acts of brutality. Whenever the detectives would come over to the house, his wife would offer coffee to the FBI agents. And that's something that a lot of mafia wives do. The FBI is doing their job. They're there to talk to you. It's pretty common, and the FBI, they'll accept it most of the time. But it was a mistake to do that at Stefano's house. He had a habit of urinating in the coffee that his wife would serve to the FBI agents. Whenever they received coffee from his wife, they would talk about how distinctive the coffee tasted. He and his wife would explain it by saying that they had unique Italian coffee beans. Romer discovered months later that that was what was going on, and he said that he would never be able to drink coffee again, which I don't blame him. Honestly, I would never accept anything from any of these mafia wives or whatever. Like, that would not, you would not catch me. I watch Blacklist, and even in that, I'm like, don't accept the drink. Every time somebody drinks something, they're dying. Like, are you gonna take that chance? I'm not. Like, not worth it, bruh. And this is just kind of like the wackadoodle kind of shit that he did. He would regularly run around the house completely nude. He would, like, masturbate in front of the officers. He was just a crazy person. Like, he wasn't the chin gigante pretending to be fake by walking around in a bathrobe. He wasn't any of that. This man was literally certifiable. The fact that he didn't spend his entire life in a mental hospital or prison tells you a lot more about the entire justice system in America at the time than it does about him. Like, that's where he belongs. He should have been there. Tommy Dorso, a corrupt police officer, was a partner of DiStefano's in the drug trade. After he died, Dorso would tell people that when DiStefano would get, like, pissed off or mad or upset or whatever, he would throw a literal toddler temper tantrum. He would roll around on the ground and, like, spit and scream and cry and plead with Satan to have mercy on him. I've heard it said a lot of times that DiStefano was a Satanist, like, one of those people that believes in Satan as, like, a god, a good thing. Satanic. There's a whole religion of people who worship Satan, and he was one of them, according to, you know, a bunch of different sources. I don't know that he ever, like, claimed that energy, but enough people said it that I'm pretty sure it's true. One of the things that DiStefano is most well known for, one of the things that I hear people use as an example of his like craziness the most, was a situation where he got into a knockdown, drag out war with his wife. You know those arguments that you're just like, you're angrier than you feel like you ever have been and you're just steaming? They got into one of those. 
DiStefano was driving, and he saw an African-American man just strolling down the street in Chicago, just minding his own business. DiStefano stopped, pulled out a gun, and held it to the man and said, get in the car. The man got in the car, DiStefano brought him home, and at gunpoint forced his wife to have sex with this random dude that was just, like, walking the streets, minding his goddamn business. When it was over, Stefano just let him go. It's not like he tortured him or anything. He was just like, all right, get the fuck out. As soon as it was over, the man went straight to the police because he, in his brain, he's like, oh my God, I'm going to get accused of rape. Like, this is going to come back on me. And rightfully so. I feel like any man would be scared in that situation. Like, I would be scared. So he goes to the police station. He tells them exactly what happened. And they bring him back to DiStefano's house. And they talk to DiStefano. And he's like, I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about. I've never seen this guy a day in my life. Just completely lying, completely pretending nothing ever happened. Which, obviously, you didn't think he was going to, like, admit that to the police. So the cops are like, all right, we can't do anything. But then they spot the man's lunchbox in the house. And they're like, oh, you've never met him before? How did you get his lunchbox in your house? Like, that's a little weird. You're being a little sus here. But even with that evidence, nothing happened. He didn't have charges pressed. He didn't even get arrested that night. DiStefano was just like a disgusting sexual deviant, man. Like, forcing your wife to have sex with another dude, like, that's literally raping both your wife and this random dude. You raped a 17-year-old child. At other times, it's even reported, like, you know that part of The Sopranos where, like, Janice has to hold a gun to Ralph's head to get him off? Well, let's just say that The Sopranos have taken quite a few cues from Stefano himself. So he's just weird. Like, it takes weird shit to get him off. He's into weird shit. He's just weird and gross. An informant that was pretty close to DiStefano described him as highly emotional, volatile, arrogant, and extremely, extremely preoccupied with his physical appearance. Like, apparently, dude was, like, a straight narcissist. Like, every time he saw a mirror, he would stop and, like, comb through his hair. He was like a chick. Like, you know how girls, every time they're walking past, like, a big piece of glass, they're, like, looking at their hair, looking at their body, making sure everything looks good? Like, that's exactly how DiStefano was. He's just, like, a pretty boy, like, so worried about his looks and, I'm the most wonderful man of all. He had mirrors all over his house. The people that were over were always aware that there was a mirror somewhere in his line of sight and he was looking in it and checking himself out. He's not even like, okay, I'm a psychopath. If I go to a restaurant or like if I go out anywhere or do anything, I'm very well aware of every exit. I'm very well aware of what every single person in the entire place is doing. I'm aware of who's moving, who's not, who's sitting, who's standing, who's... I'm very aware of everything. But it was very clear that that's not what DiStefano was doing. It was very, very clear that he was just, like, checking himself out. There was no other possible explanation. He was just like, I'm pretty, aren't I? You know, like, just very preoccupied with his looks. And on top of that, he was a basket case. Like, he would be laughing and then go to crying and then go to pissed and then go to happy. He was just, like, very bipolar if bipolar was a minute-to-minute thing. And that's why a lot of people are like, oh, he's bipolar. No, bipolar isn't just like, oh, happy, sad, happy, sad. That's not bipolar. Bipolar is states. Like, I'm in a manic 
state. I have, you know, even if it's days at a time that I'm happy and then days at a time that I'm depressed or whatever, bipolar is not like, oh, happy, sir, happy, sir. That's not bipolar. So that's not what he is. This is not, oh, well, he's bipolar. Don't say anything because he's mentally, no, that's not what this is. He was just a fucking crazy person. And he's also one of our mafia members, like so many others, that can never grasp the concept that something that they did led to consequences. Stefano would frequently claim that had he not been falsely accused of rape when he was 17 years old, he would have been elected as President of the United States. A. Not only did you not get charged with rape for a rape that you literally created... Nobody would want your crazy ass as president or senator or anything. And then see, he just looks at it like, oh, the world is against me. I was falsely accused and I could have done such great things had the meanies not lied about me. And there's so many mafia members that I see with this kind of attitude. Like, oh, it's not my fault. They pinned it on me, but I didn't really do it. I didn't do anything to deserve that. And now I'm the victim. Now the whole world is against me. The system is against me. The justice system, blah, blah, blah. No, you did that. And it's so hard to get that through to some people, especially Di Stefano. In 1965, Di Stefano was convicted of conspiracy to commit extortion and was sentenced to three to five years in prison. Now, I keep looking for any kind of information on this arrest and I really can't find it. So if you know more about the 1965 arrest, you let me know because I've looked and I can't find anything about it. He was released on parole in 1969 after serving only part of his sentence. Three years after that, DiStefano received a three and a half year prison term again on February 22nd, 1972 for endangering the life of Charles Cromaldi, a mobster that used to be a juice collector and do the same kind of thing as he does, who turned informant. Cromaldi was a co-conspirator in the murder of Foreman, He was a witness, and we'll go over that a little bit later, but that's who he is. He's a witness on the murder of Foreman, and DiStefano is in danger because of Cromaldi. In this case, DiStefano and Edward Spece were found guilty of inducing a prospective witness not to testify in a pending federal case, pretty much just meaning like they attempted witness intimidation, and their dumbasses did it right in front of a cop. James P. Brasseth, a police officer of some kind, he's federal narcotics, blah, 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 supervisor, blah, 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 whatever. He's a cop. And he testified that he had Cromaldi in protective custody, and he was escorting him into the Dirksen Federal Building for trial when he got on the elevator at the first floor and headed for the 18th floor. The elevator stopped at the second floor to pick more people up, And that's where Spece was able to open the door and hold it open for DiStefano after saying, oh, look who's here. And the both of them got into the elevator. Apparently, DiStefano got like all up in Cromaldi's face and he said, my eyes are dimming, but I think I know you. My memory is fading too. It must be old age. I understand your eyes are failing. I understand your eyes are failing, are dimming, and your memory is fading permanently this week. While, like, smashing his fist into his hand, like, I understand that your memory is fading 
permanently this week. He just got like all dramatic about it. So Cromaldi is standing there like in the corner, just like white as a ghost and shaking. And Spiece looked at Cromaldi and asked, have you done any fishing lately? Which, obviously, this is a reference to, like, you're going to be swimming with the fishes soon. Now, they get found guilty of this, and they get three and a half years. But Stefano would go, and he would file an appeal. And he defended himself by saying that he mistakenly thought that this dude in the elevator was somebody that he knew. And apologized with a statement that he made regularly. My eyes are dimming and my memory is fading. That's just the way that I tell people that, like, oh, I think I know you. Like, he just said it like that. Like, oh, my eyes are dimming and my memory is fading. Just super nice, you know? Like, yeah, those words were said, but not in that tone. So then... I guess it got, like, a little weird and quiet in the elevator. And Spiece is sitting there and, like, he is trying to release the tension in the air. So he innocently asks another person on the elevator, Oh, have you gone fishing lately? Just to, like, try to start some innocent chit-chat, you know? He's just trying to start a conversation, guys. You're putting him in jail for having an innocent conversation. He's just trying to make small talk. According to them, Di Stefano didn't even recognize Cromaldi, and he had to be informed by Spiece who it was after they got off the elevator on the 21st floor. Obviously, this defense did not work, the appeal did not go through, and it was laughed off the judge's desk. Like, it was like, get the fuck out of here. But one thing I do have to agree with DiStefano and Spiece about here is that they requested to have Cromaldi testify at trial, and the court refused to let Cromaldi testify. I'm pretty sure that there's, like, an amendment or, like, a constitutional something that allows you to face your accuser. That's why, like, rape victims have to come face-to-face in court with their rapist, child predators, like, all that kind of stuff. You always have to face the person that hurt you in court because of this thing in the Constitution that says you have the right to face your accuser. So why was Stefano and Spiece not allowed to come face-to-face with Cromaldi if Cromaldi is the one whose testimony is putting them in jail? It just doesn't match up and it doesn't make sense. I'm not really a proponent of like, oh, DiStefano deserved these, you know, allowances in his life. I think it would have been better off if he went to jail and stayed there forever. But at the same time, like, you can't just pick and choose what constitutional amendments you're going to uphold that day, judge. Everybody gets those rights. And there's no reason that they shouldn't have had Cromaldi on that stand. In 1972, he was arrested and charged with illegally possessing firearms as a felon. Now, this is the point that we have to talk about a very, very grisly scene. Again, I mentioned to you, I have chapters in this video. If you're on YouTube, they're in the description. If you're listening on Spotify or wherever you're listening, they are there. Click them if you do not want to hear this because this is some messed up shit I'm about to go into. Like, it's brutal. It's very graphic. It's very violent. There's a lot of nasty stuff I'm about to talk about. So if you're a little bit squeamish, you got a light stomach, you don't really want to hear about that kind of stuff, you don't want to hear about violence or anything, click to the next chapter. The chapter on William Action Jackson is going to be brutal. So forewarn, trigger warning, it's nasty. So... I am split in my opinion here, okay? 
because William Action Jackson is another juice collector the way that DiStefano is. Now, the way that DiStefano went after Cromaldi, because Cromaldi was a witness, so too does he go after Jackson. William Action Jackson is one of Sam's collectors, and he was known to collect debts not by breaking kneecaps, not by running people over with their car, not by beating them. He would just rape their wives or girlfriends. So if somebody doesn't pay, let's say they owe you $5,000 and they haven't paid, he doesn't go in and mess their store up. He doesn't chase them down and beat them up or break their knee. He grabs their wife or their girlfriend and rapes them. Stories circulated about him going as far as to bite off the nipples of one of the girls that he was assaulting. So nobody gives a fuck that this big-ass doofy fuck is dead. Nobody cares. I certainly don't. This guy is the scum of the earth. But I think you'll see why I have a dilemma in saying that, like, oh, you know, Stefano killed him. Great for him. You'll see why. So... Action Jackson was approached in 1960 by an agent, and he pretty much went to him and was like, hey, I want you to flip, I want you to become an informant. Action Jackson is very loyal, and he turns around and he's like, nah, fuck that shit, and he kept it moving. That was that. It happened all the time. Like, cops always tried to get mafia guys to flip. It doesn't happen, and you keep it moving. But in 1961, for some reason... Sam was convinced that Jackson did flip and become an informant. It's possible that the outfit had heard that he was approached and just wanted to get rid of him because he was approached. Honestly, personally, I think it's very possible that the FBI heard about some vile-ass shit that he did, and knowing what DeStefano would do to him if there was ever so much as a rumor that he was a rat, put out rumors that he was a rat. I don't really know, nobody really knows, but somehow, some way, the idea was planted in the head of DiStefano and the Chicago outfit that Action Jackson was a rat. Honestly, however they got word that he flipped, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that by the end of this, when Jackson was finally dead, his murder would come to be known as one of the most brutal gangland killings in American history. He was abducted by Sam and his crew at gunpoint, probably somewhere around August 5th or 6th in 1961. He was brought back to a meat rendering plant in Chicago, and there he was hogtied. And the only reason we know this is because when police found him, there was rope burns on his wrists and his feet. Over the span of days that they had him, they had impaled him with all sorts of things. He had, like, big and small cuts and burns all over his body. He had a sharp object plunged into his right ear, leaving like a gaping hole in his right ear. He had broken ribs. His chest was crushed. His kneecaps were smashed with a bat, both of them. Both kneecaps smashed with a bat. They shot him. They took a blowtorch to multiple places on his body. And they even used a cattle prod on his penis and anus. But he stayed alive. The crew enacted pretty much any and every torture method that they knew to get this guy to break because they wanted him to break and tell them what he told the police so that they could figure out a defense or know if they have to run. They want to know what has been told to the police. So they're doing everything in their power to break this dude. 
as they questioned him, he continued to insist all throughout that he wasn't an informant. Nobody is believing him, but he is swearing like, bro, I never said a word. I never told anybody anything. I have kept my mouth shut. I don't know who told you this. I don't know where this is coming from, but I am not a rat. But they're not believing him, so all they're going to do is just ramp up the torture and up and up and up and up and up it. They impaled him through the rectum with a meat hook and hung him a foot in the air as they continued to question him. After they finished this brutal torture, they just walked away and left him hanging there. Three days later, he finally died. I honestly feel like it's just as likely that he died of dehydration as it is that he died from his wounds or shock. He was left alone in a warehouse that I'm assuming wasn't air-conditioned for three days in August. A human can only go around three days without water. And then you add in, like, the heat, the fact that he's hurt. So who knows what he eventually died from. But yeah, he could have just died of dehydration. Either way... As bad as he is, I do feel like even the worst of the worst doesn't deserve this kind of death. Like, yeah, I'm not sad that he died. He's dead. That's great. Let's all cheer for humanity that he's not being unleashed on humanity anymore. But I also feel like I would feel bad if I heard that Hitler died like this. Like, it's just inhumane and horrible. And I get why, you know, a lot of the things that DiStefano does is just because he's a sick fuck. But this is for a reason. There's a reason that this crew is torturing him to try to get him to talk. And it's not his fault because he didn't talk. He was never a rat. He never cooperated. He never worked with FBI. So he literally couldn't give them anything because he never told them anything. I'm sure that by the end, he was like confessing to things that he never did. But... Yeah, my point being is that I don't care that he died, but I don't think that the worst soul that has ever been born deserves this kind of shit. Like, I don't think any human being should be subjected to this. His body was found in the trunk of his car on August 12th, 1961, after his green Cadillac convertible had been illegally parked on Lower Wacker Drive in Chicago for days. He was also pretty well known to be involved in the killing of Anthony and Michael Spilotro, two outfit associates who were also suspected of being informants. Several other associates and members of his crew and the crime syndicate in general were also indicted on these two murders, but neither one went through. Going back in time a little bit, on November 19, 1963, the body of Leo Foreman was discovered in the trunk of his car. At this point, it seems like that might just be like a trademark calling card of Sam Stefano. Like, if someone's body is found in the trunk of their own car, it was Sam. Foreman had been kidnapped by Mario. I say kidnapped, but more than likely, Mario had actually convinced Foreman to get into the car like of his own free will. He convinced Foreman that the fight that he had gotten into with Sam earlier in the day wasn't really that big of a deal. Apparently, him and Sam got into a fight in Foreman's office over money, and Foreman physically removed DiStefano from his office. And now Foreman knows who DiStefano is. Foreman is a collector of his. They work together. He knows who DiStefano is, and he's like, oh shit, this is really bad. And he pretty much goes into hiding. 
Mario ended up somehow finding him, and he's like, oh, fuck, okay, I'm about to die. And Mario goes to him, he's like, listen, it's not that big of a deal. He's like, you know, Sam feels bad about what happened. Like, it was shitty. You're one of our friends. We don't want there to be bad blood. And now Foreman's feeling super relieved. He's like, oh, shit, I thought I was going to have to go into hiding. I was going to die. This is really bad. But now Mario is like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. He's like, all right, let's get in the car. I'll go with you so you know, but nothing bad will happen because I'll be there. Let's go over to Sam's house. We'll sit. We'll have a beer. We'll chill. And we'll clear the air. Let's all kiss and make up. So now Foreman is like, oh, thank God. So Mario's like, yeah, hop in the car. Let's go. So they hop in the car. They go over to Sam's house and everybody's there. You know, Chuck Cromaldi is there. Tony Spilotro is there and they're all just chilling. They're having a beer and then they head downstairs. Once they get into the basement, which is Sam's torture chamber, this is where Foreman was chained up. Once he was in the torture basement, Sam and Mario DiStefano, Chuck Romaldi, and Tony Spilotro, they start going in. And it's a little unclear if this is just because there was an argument between Sam and him or they thought he was an informant. The level of torture makes it feel like there's probably some kind of suspicion of informant. But these guys together, they smash his kneecaps, his hands, and his genitals with hammers and bats. By the time they were done torturing him, he had been stabbed over 20 times with an ice pick and large pieces of the skin on his arms had been sliced off. And if it makes you feel any better, I think he might have already been dead when they started slicing the skin off. Pretty sure he was already dead and then they were just like still having fun, just like slicing skin off, you know, like great times. Either way, at whatever point they decided that they were satisfied with the torture that had been inflicted, they shot him execution style in the head and they put him in the trunk and they left the car for it to be discovered by police. Foreman was just yet another member of the crew in a long line of people that would be suspected to be informants and tortured horrifically and killed for answers in like what they gave to the cops. That same year, Sam Stefano got into a fight with a woman at a steakhouse. In front of an entire restaurant full of people, he grabbed the girl by the hair, yanked her into the bathroom, and raped her. Everybody in that restaurant knew exactly what was going on, and nobody said a goddamn word. And that is why it is all men. I understand being scared for your life. I get that. But at the same time, I don't really understand how you could sit there and know what's going on. Everybody in this restaurant knows. They, like, hear her screaming. She comes out wailing. It was very clear what just happened. And everybody's like, oh, no, I don't want to get hurt. Like, I, I could never. I would die real fast around Sam Stefano. Sam Stefano was a man very well known for the amount of violence and unpredictability that went along with his personality. He was really well known to kill people without giving it a second thought. He was feared by both his enemies and his allies. Sometimes that madness was an asset. The outfit used it to further their own agenda. They needed things done that only a madman would do, and they had one. They used his reputation to intimidate anybody who even slightly thought about going against them. But eventually, his madness became too much even for them. 
and it became clear that it was coming to an end. One of the times that Di Stefano's madness was like full display was during his court appearances. He would often pull a bullhorn out and start screaming into the bullhorn, and that served its purpose. It scared the shit out of the jury. Because they're sitting there and they're like, Jesus Christ, this man is on trial and he's just doing whatever the hell he wants. He also acted as his own attorney during these trials. And that's not something that's like super crazy. A lot of people acted as their own attorney, but it was still considered very ballsy, like very, very crazy. You're, you're probably not going to get off if you're representing yourself. And the judge will tell you that. Like very clear when you say, I'm going to represent myself, like the judge is like, hey, you know, you're probably going to lose if you do that, right? And they're like, yeah, okay. When he was on trial for voter fraud, pretty much he was being tried because he voted. And voting is illegal as a felon, so voter fraud. He got three contempt of court arrests. At one time, he arrived in his pajamas, which is like obviously a clear tactic to just undermine the authority of the court. He's like, fuck you, you're not even important enough to get dressed for. On another occasion, he arrived on a stretcher feigning illness, but it's clear that this is just yet another tactic to disrupt the courtroom, and he'd be on this stretcher and then, like, pull his bullhorn out and start screaming into it. And on multiple occasions, again, acting as his own attorney, he would go on these long-ass rants to the jury, pretty much saying how the people that are pressing charges against him or are on the other side are colluding with Joseph Stalin. Which is wild. That's a very, very wild accusation because Stalin had already been dead for over a decade by this time. But again, these crazy antics, they're just, they're meant to scare the jury. They're meant to confuse everybody and just throw everyone off. And it worked. Even though the charges for voter fraud ended up with a mistrial because the jury was straight up too scared to find him guilty, the judge gave him a year in prison for each of the contempt charges, so he had to do three years in prison. In 1972, the FBI managed to turn Chuck Cromaldi into a witness after he had gotten arrested and flipped because he didn't want to go to jail for the rest of his life. Using Cromaldi, they were able to indict Tony Spilotro and Mario and Sam Stefano in the murder of Leo Foreman, and the trial was set to take place in May of 1973. At the pre-trial proceedings, things started to take a turn for the worst, because he, yet again, decided to represent himself in court and he was going to be his own lawyer. And you have a constitutional right to do that. The judge can't tell you that you can't represent yourself. You can. But it's still a very bold move, and it's not a great idea, especially for someone like Sam Stefano. His behavior was completely erratic and unpredictable. He would interrupt the judge in the middle of her sentences. He would, like, talk shit to the prosecutor. He would make wild accusations and just, like, start spouting off nonsense and conspiracy theories. He just had absolutely no regard for any of the rules or any kind of normalcy in this court case. As pretrial continued, Sam's behavior only became more and more outrageous. He would, like, randomly start shouting and cursing out witnesses. He would threaten them with physical violence. He would, like, you know, like, fake, like, make them, like, you know, 
Like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, okay? Don't sit here and pretend you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, mm, like you know, you just, mm, like, and, and just start cursing them out. For those of you who are listening and not watching, I'm talking about, like, faking them out. Like, pretending you're going to punch somebody and making them, like, jerk back. He would do that kind of stuff. It was very clear that this man had absolutely no control over himself. And that was going to have a severe impact on this trial. It was a very bad thing for him that this trial was such a high-profile media spectacle. It was on the front page of the newspaper every day, and people were, like, jonesing to find out what crazy shit DiStefano did the day before in court on the newspaper the next day. This would make it a very, very, very difficult thing to do to go in and bribe anybody or corrupt the judges or corrupt the jury. They're not going to be able to have much leeway because of how high profile it is. Because the bigger it gets, the more media attention it gets, the tighter they're going to lock that courtroom down. So we've got a few things going on here. First of all, we got Paul Rica who died of a heart attack on October 11th, 1972. Rico was widely known to be the main person that would take DiStefano under his wing and protect him and not let anybody get near him. He would not let anybody lay a finger on DiStefano, and every time anybody even so much as thought about it, Rico would step in and, like, nix that idea immediately. Once Rico died, things are fair game, and nobody is left to protect him. DiStefano knows this. And he also knows that the FBI is watching him. He's actively on trial. He's been arrested and just spent time in jail on three separate occasions. And he knows this is really bad for him. And it is. Tony Accardo does not want him to go to trial. He does not want this case to get past pretrial. And to make sure that that doesn't happen, he sanctions a hit on Sam DiStefano. It becomes a lot more difficult because DiStefano's not an idiot. He knows Rika being dead is really bad for him, and he knows that the media circus surrounding this trial that he's in is really bad for him, and he knows that he probably has a target on the back of his head. Because he knows all this, he kind of like holes up at his house. Nobody could really get to him unless they were like clearly coming in for violence, and nobody wants that. So in order to prevent them from like having to go in and take their goddamn house down, they task Sam's own men to take care of it. Mario Stefano and Tony Spilotro work together to come up with a strategy to take Sam out permanently. Mario and Tony get together and they come up with this idea that they're going to tell Sam that they found the safe house where Chuck Grimaldi is being detained. Now, He's currently on trial for the murder of Leo Foreman. And this is 10 years after the murder took place. So why is this trial going on? Because of Cromaldi. Cromaldi flipped and he was giving testimony against everybody. So when DiStefano thinks that he has a way to get to Cromaldi, not only does he want him because of money disputes, not only does he want him because... He's a sick fuck and he enjoys torturing people. But he wants him because getting rid of Chuck Cromaldi means there is no longer any charges being pressed against him or Mario or Tony. So he is elated when they tell him this. So Mario and Tony tell Sam that they had paid the guards that were protecting Cromaldi to turn around and like kind of have a blind eye. They told him, like, hey, this Saturday, we have it so that all we got to do is go. We already paid them. This Saturday, we're going to kill him. 
and he is busting at the seams ready to do this shit. So Saturday comes along and Tony Spilotro and Mario get to the house and they're there to pick him up and Sam is, he's ready to go. He's got his shoes on. He is ready to leave. Tony and Mario get out of the car and they're walking up to the house and Sam is coming out of his house. So he exits through his garage. So he's, he lifts the garage door as they're walking up and they're like about to meet halfway in the driveway. When the three of them are just like feet apart, Mario moves out of the way so that Sam and Tony Spilotro are facing each other. Spilotro produces a double barrel shotgun that he had been hiding. With the first shot that he shoots, Mad Sam's arm was completely severed. He shot in rapid succession, and the second shot struck Mad Sam square in the chest, and he was dead before he hit the ground. He died at the age of 63 on April 14, 1973. Sam DiStefano was finally put to rest in Queen of Heaven Catholic Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. The trial continued, and Mario was found guilty, and Tony Spilotro was not guilty. So Mario went to jail. He was sentenced to 30 to 40 years. After Sam died, the trial continued, and Tony Spilotro was acquitted, but Mario Stefano was found guilty and given a sentence of 20 to 40 years. Two years later, the decision was overturned, and a retrial was set. Mario was sitting in jail just waiting for the retrial to begin so he could try to get out of jail on this second retrial. And while he was waiting for that retrial, he died of a heart attack in prison. So that wraps up the story of this evil, sadistic, horrible human being known as Mad Sam Stefano. Let me know in the comments what you think about him. How do you feel about him getting such a quick end after doling out the horrors that he did to other people for so long? Do you think he should have been taken out before he was killed or after? What do you think? Let me know. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I continue to delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye.